This is a podcast about the hardcore community. Made by and for those who live authentic lives and embrace hard truths. We archive the stories of the bands and people who make this lifestyle possible. I'm Josh Lyon. And I'm Greg Benoit. And this is the Hardcore Archive Podcast. Company. So uh, welcome, Hannah. Uh, How are you doing tonight? Hey, I'm doing really good. Stoked to be on again. I, uh, I always love having you on, um, and I was really excited when you reached out and said, hey, let's do another episode since it's been a year uh, since your last visit. Um, for those of you who did not uh, tune in last time Hannah was on, shame on you. You should go back and listen to that episode at least twice. Um, get those numbers up for us. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, Hannah, can you tell us just a little bit about maybe... Um, your background, where you're from, and kind of what your connections to the hardcore music scene and music community are? Yeah, sure. So let's see, I'm from Syracuse, New York. Um, and I started going to shows, I don't know, must have been like 14 years old back in Fulton when I lived in Fulton as a pastor's kid, no less. That's a funny story too. Um, and just continued to, I mean, I, I think it's like pretty cliche, but like most of us, hardcore definitely saved my life. Um, growing up, like being homeschooled and a pastor's kid, you didn't really know much about the world and, um, some of that abuse and trauma that happened in my childhood when I found hardcore and the anger and the rage that kind of happened and the messages that were being said and taught, um, resonated with me. Right. So that ultimately ended up hooking me kind of for life. I mean, I, I must say that I'm not so good nowadays at listening to newer bands. I'm trying to remember that so if anyone does have new music send it my way because i definitely am like i feel like i want to seek it out myself but i always end up just going back to the same bands i've been listening to you know since i was 14 right we all have our favorites yeah i'm the same way i like put on like shy halud's that within blood ill tempered and i think of that as the new shy halud even though it's like i think more than 20 years old at this point um (laughs) And I, I also st- like I, I dip my toes into new music, but I, I really prefer the reruns, uh, so to speak. But a good source for like up and coming bands uh, is actually Josh, uh, my co-host's um, Instagram, Enterprise Hardcore. He is like ravenous and knows every new band from every scene and every country. Um, so for you and for anyone else who's interested in, in, you know, just getting the scoop on some new bands, having somebody maybe curate that playlist for you. Uh, Josh's other Instagram uh, is is where to where to check out uh, Enterprise Hardcore, and I guess last time we we spe- uh, spoke, I didn't I guess I didn't realize you were from Fulton, um, and so I'm like doing a little bit of mental math in my head, and I'm like uh, wondering. So you probably were like going to shows around the time like was another breath active when you started, or was that a little after? Oh you yeah, before? nope, another breath was around. Um, so yeah, funny enough, I lived in Fulton for like four years. It was like kind of like a short little stint when my dad pastored at church there. But, um, yeah, there was another breath that definitely played all the time. That was one of my favorite bands for sure. It was, I think this never ender was another one there. That, that was like a band that was like a precursor to another breath. Yeah. You know, what's funny. I think one of my first shows I went to was actually this band called vigilance. And I think a few people will probably remember that band. Um, let's see, if Hope Dies was playing around the time, would show up in that area, you know, Engineer, different bands like that. 
Um, so you spoke to something about kind of finding hardcore and having it resonate with and do something for you to kind of bring to the surface maybe some trauma or at the very least, um, uh, you know, give you a community where you can kind of work through some of those things. And that's like the whole appeal to hard for hardcore to me um, is, you know, I had I had some difficult uh, experiences in my childhood. I, I have PTSD and um, very much, uh, th obtained that, uh, you know, when I was a really young kid, um, you know, felt extremely isolated throughout most of my childhood and early adolescence. And then when I discovered punk and then hardcore, um, it really was just mind blowing because there were bands that were, you know, speaking just overtly about, you know, having survived abuse as children, um, you know, having survived other traumatic experiences that were unfamiliar to me, but I could at least sympathize with, um, you know, people growing up in poverty um, or, you know, having been subject to like a violent crime. Um, and that has what is what has kept me coming back. Um, uh, so I feel like we're very much uh, kindred spirits in that sense. But I feel like you kind of took it another step beyond that. And uh, you kind of like almost made. I guess creating a sense of community around healing trauma into like a whole career. Can you tell us a little bit about what your professional background is, what your day-to-day -day job is, and and uh, and maybe kind of how you came, just the Cliff Notes version of that, how you came uh, to work in that field? Yeah, sure. So, funny enough, I mean, so yeah, the hardcore scene, I I, I accredited to saving my life, but then in some really strange ways, also uh, destroying it. And I think those people that know me will probably understand that and it's that addictive personality, that escapism type of thing. Mm -hmm. So right when you like kind of you find anger and rage as a source of almost addiction to escape like that trauma, um, you know, hardcore is perfect for that. It's really it's it's very fueled behind anger and, and we should be angry. Right. Like there's a lot of things to be angry about. But um that entailed like eventually like me drinking and having addiction issues and stuff like that. And, um, you know, eventually then I kind of like stopped and was like, okay, what am I going to do? I remember the last show I was at actually, it was a sworn enemy show in Binghamton. And I, that was the last night I ever drank. Um, and, uh, you know, I just know I had some really, I wanted to kill myself that night. I was very suicidal and I woke up and, I was just done, you know, I said no more and, uh, written to, um, you know, I did rehab. I got some help. So then after that, I was like, well, what am I going to do with my life? You know? Um, and I found that I really cared about other people that were like me. And that's how I ended up, um, working as like a peer. And right now this brings us to now in the past year, I've been a methadone counselor. So, um, I work in, you know, the opioid treatment program at Helio Health at Syracuse, New York. And I love it because it's right harm reduction. This is one of those things that we kind of talked about talking about. And I think this is, it's a very taboo subject because right, like, you know, a lot of my patients are, their goal is not necessarily abstinence from heroin, right? It might not be, you're never going to do a drug ever again. Right. Like my goal is to help people's lives just get like a tiny bit better and keep them alive. And that's the battle that I see. And I help people fight every day is at this point, if using still is what they want to do, 
how can I bring up their quality of life and keep them alive? So um, you touched on so much uh, there. Um, and I want to, I think I want to get to all of it because it's all, this is all like really important. And the interviews I do with you and the interviews I do where we mention things like mental health, mental well being, and addiction recovery are, I think, some of the most important ones um, that I've done. Um, your relationship with anger that you touched upon is, is very similar to mine and how it intersects with hardcore. Um, you know, in my younger years, it was this novel thing like, oh, wow, here's a place where I can bring my anger and it helps me fit in instead of helps me become alienated from the group. Um, in some ways it's normal to have, you know, some anger that you're working through. Um, but I found that as I age, I'm, I'm in my forties now, um, you know, there have been points in time looking back, uh, even before like I had a substance abuse issue or uh, a defined diagnosed mental illness, I can see that like my relationship with anger and the emotion anger was very much like that of the relationship with a drug. Um, you know, trauma, traumatic memories, intrusive thoughts that you can never seem to push away long enough to feel normal. Um, they're all very disempowering, but then anger comes in and it's just like a tidal wave that kind of washes the slate clean and wow, holy shit, doesn't it feel good to feel in control and, and, you know, feel like, um, you know, you can change your circumstances and, and, and anger very much was an empowering emotion for me, but taken to an extreme, um, in some of the ways that I took it, it was damaging to my relationships and opportunities that I had in my life. Um, so now I, I try to acknowledge that I still have this, you know, incredible, um, capacity for anger and that on some cosmic level, it's, it's justified. You know, I, I went through some, some difficult things and continue to, um, but now I try to use it more, um, along the lines of when I can tell I'm becoming angry, that's like, a red flag or a warning light that I need to engage with in my physical and mental health uh, supports um, and kind of take that energy from a destructive place and, and bring it to a, a place where it's going to heal me. Um, I, you know, find that uh, one thing we also share in common that anyone who listened to the last episode that we did or, or any of the other episodes I've done is uh, an interest in Buddhism, which is very much, uh, concerned with the cycles of creation and destruction. Um, and I find that kind of my relationship with anger has been like that at, at some, some points in time. Um, so harm reduction is something that I've been in recovery for, uh, I don't know, about five and a half, almost six years is not something that is like a major part of my, um, recovery plan because what I'm aiming for is like total abstinence. Um, but it's something that, um, you know, I know people that that is more along the lines of what they're going for, what they're going for right now until they are in a place where they can, you know, do something a little bit more. Um, in some ways, I, 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 I find it scary, um, you know, because I do know people who, you know, had issues with opioids and to hear somebody kind of on the fence about whether they're going to fully give up opioids or not is, is kind of frightening because it is such a lethal drug. And I'm, you know, at this point, I think everyone who's been in recovery for long enough knows multiple people who've overdosed or died uh, on opioids. But it's the opioid epidemic has gotten to a point where I think most com most people in just the kind of the common baseline population know someone who's uh, overdosed or have a relationship where you know that person knows someone who's overdosed and died. So it does it does kind of scare me to hear that there's like people that aren't 
you know, fully ready to commit to like total abstinence. Um, but on, on the other hand too, I also recognize that for many people, um, you know, that is like a, a big step in the right direction or, you know, they can put parameters on it. So, you know, maybe they're not using, um, you know, like street drugs anymore. They're going to like a methadone clinic. Um, so in, in terms of like what you do, um, if someone has like an opioid problem, um, you know, they want help or they want to at least feel safe. Um, are they like then going to enroll in a program that's uh, like at your facility where they might get, you know, like regular, um, you know, injections or, or, or prescriptions of, um, um, I, I can't think of the name of some of the drugs. I'm sure you can, you can, uh, you can chime in with those, but uh, like some of the methadone type drugs or the, uh, I can't think of the other one that begins with a B. Oh, so we have Suboxone okay. and, and we have methadone and we have Vivitrol um, and we have Subutex. So there's lots of options, right? There's so many options now um, for people that are battling against opiates, right? And um, so methadone particularly, what what's nice about it is it does pre prevent overdoses, right? So if people are using heroin, right, still, um, and they're on methadone, not always, but it does help prevent overdose. Um, and ultimately it does help take away the cravings. And what we're, what we're facing is like, we're not facing just heroin anymore, right? We're facing um, fentanyl, we're facing xylazine, which xylazine is a new drug that I've seen this year that's actually just rotting people's skin off. And they're getting these terrible sores, and um, that's the worst one. So a lot of the the, the heroin's just cut with things now. It's very rare that you I don't ever see straight heroin anymore, which is terrifying. And I think that's the battle, and and what we have to look at, and and from a harm reduction model, and tying this into Buddhism, because for me, like this was hard for me too, right? I was very much on the sideline of like abstinence is kind of the way to go for a lot of years. You know, I've got seven years in, you know, going into seven and a half. And I always was like, I think, you know, we just, we can't do anything, you know, cause we can't control, right? And um, now it is about that saving lives thing. So if someone is still using, I just want to be able to be connected with them enough that maybe they feel a little less alone and they can take drugs. So maybe they're using less. And ultimately, if they can take something that keeps them alive longer, there is more of a chance that I can be there. So when they do decide to make that step, right, that's compassion. That's all that's what Buddhism is about in a nutshell, right, is that compassion for other people. Um, so it's been it is interesting. and It's a tough crowd. Um I, I've actually found that I love it. In the first couple of months, I was like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this. This is a learning curve. Um, and now I've started to really enjoy it. And and I like being on the side of the harm reduction piece, just like, um, right, like Narcan and all of that. I mean, it's I don't know why we don't just have Narcan, you know, on the street, just like free <laughs> in baskets yeah. for people, <laughs> you know, but that's what I would do if I could change it. Yeah. We, uh, I, I work at a public library as my day job, and we have um, installed in the last year this thing that hangs on the wall. It's near our AED, the um, defibrillator for if people have heart attacks. It looks kind of like a box that you might see a defibrillator in, but it's just filled with Narcan. 
and people are welcome uh, uh, to take uh, uh, to take that as as they need it. Um, I've we've arranged some trainings on um, Narcan and how to identify an overdose at the library for the staff um, because it, it probably shouldn't come as any surprise to you, but it might come as a surprise to some of our listeners that uh, libraries are a place where people go to use opioids um, and. Well, it's not a, a big problem um, at the library that I currently work at. I know that there are a number of public libraries in the county that I live in where, you know, they would regularly have people shooting up. Um, so having that on site, I think, does a couple things. One is that it makes it available so that people can take a supply and just leave it in their glove box, um, which is what we were told to do. You know, just keep it in your glove box because you don't know where you're going to be. You could be shopping at Walmart and somebody's overdosing. Um but having that um, kind of dispenser hanging on the wall also, I think, breaks down some of the stigma around talking about it and acknowledging that the problem does exist, that the problem is not just something that exists in like, you know, extremely poor neighborhoods. It's something that also is impacting suburbs and wealthy neighborhoods and wealthy people. Um, so I, I agree with the, you know, the the benefit of harm reduction uh, in, in public health. Um, I, I guess for me, sometimes I get a little skeptical, like, is this like, um, like a clinically endorsed, um, version of like California sober or something, um, which I'm also like, personally, that isn't what I'm going for, but I know people who've like alcohol ruined their life. They have like used the marijuana in a way that, um, you know, does something that enabled them to like stop alcohol. And I'm happy for them that that, you know, worked that that well for them and, and that they're on a trajectory that's leading to greater health. But it is something that I, uh, you know, kind of the there's a part of me that is, um, you know, like a little concerned, like, is this is this going to lead to greater health or is this just going to like get someone to a certain point where they kind of stop their journey and then they're just kind of stuck in that place um, for, you know, longer than they would have been if they had just bit the bullet and, and given up everything all at once. Um, do you have like any thoughts on, 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 you know, people, who, people like me who have some, see the value, but have like some concerns, if only philosophical concerns? So, you know, I like to think about it like this and, and, um, we wanted to touch on physical health too. So I'm going to kind of tie that in here, but it's all about quality of life. Um, and what that path looks like for each and every person, because you have to really look at the whole person. And if someone had an issue with one substance, it may mean they don't with another. Um, you know, like I have friends that stop using heroin that can drink a glass of wine every once in a while and they're fine. Right. I have friends that probably use weed and it's fine. Um, just like I have friends that use Suboxone and Methadone and like, right. So I think it just depends on, are we going to use something to escape our rage, our anger, our uncomfortableness, our trauma, or is it just simply a tool to help bring the quality of our life better? And that ties in with the whole picture, right? Like we shouldn't just be having conversations with people about, the drugs they're using or not using, right? I want to know, are you eating properly? Are you building a community? Are you connecting with people? Are you, what does your diet look like? You know, like aside of being a methadone teacher, I've been teaching yoga for two years, you know? So I talk to people a lot about the trauma in their body, right? People not in recovery, just, you know, 
what we would call the normies, you know, yeah. like people that, <laughs> that people that can somehow have a glass of wine and not go crazy, you know, God bless them. I don't know what that's like, but like, you know, and it's all about for all of us, it's quality of life, you know, no matter what we do, whether it's a drug, a drink or food, possibly exercise or even anger, right? Like that's still an addiction and can become an addiction if we're avoiding the present moment, right? Like something that's uncomfortable. And that, you know, that ties right into that Buddhist philosophy as well, right? Like how can we make friends with discomfort? How can we make friends with what's going on? So I think to anyone that kind of struggles with the harm reduction piece, and it might not be for you and that's okay, but let other people do what they need to do. You know, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, I do have a balanced perspective on that because there was like a point in time in my life where, um, you know, I like was taking a benzodiazepine every night just so I could sleep for a little bit. Um, and there was like, at some point I crossed a threshold when that like ceased being a therapeutic thing to being just like, I w there was never a choice. Like I, at some point I just wasn't even going to choose not to take one. It was just going to happen every night. And even in that state, I would think like, um, oh, you know, these people on, on methadone or, um, is buprenorphine the drug I was thinking of? Is that? Yeah. Yeah. That's okay. Yeah. Okay. Suboxone. Okay. So now I would think like, oh, these people, you know, are they, you know, taking Suboxone or whatever. Um, but here I, here I was, you know, judging them from, you know, a place where I was taking something every day, but it came from a pharmacy that I got, you know, at the grocery store. So I thought that was okay. So I do have like a more balanced uh, perspective on it and think that it is an appropriate tool, um, you know, kind of in the recovery toolkit for many people. Um, you mentioned, uh, a, something, um, you know, about, uh, kind of getting back into the body and like the mind body, um, connection, which is kind of how I think about it. Um, one of the, one of the big benefits of addiction recovery and mental health recovery for me has been, um, a better awareness of how things like my mood and my attitude and my emotions impact my physical health and how my physical health can make it easier or harder to sustain a positive mood or a positive attitude. Um, I think I was pretty typical of a lot of Americans before I really started taking my mental health seriously. And that I kind of thought as my psychology as one thing and like my physical health as another, and sometimes they're related, but they're mostly just these two things that stay in separate lanes. Um, and the big breakthrough for me was kind of this awareness. Um, as I mentioned, I've, 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 uh, I've been lifting weights for like 20, 25 years. Um, I think I mentioned it in the pre uh, recording, uh, uh, kind of setup. Um, but I've been lifting weights for like 25 years. And then of course, when I became addicted to benzodiazepines, that stopped, um, because those are muscle relaxers and you're not going to get a, a good pump, uh, as Arnold would say, uh, in the gym when you've been taking muscle relaxers all night. Um, and, uh, you know, when I really drilled down into my substance abuse and my mental health problems, you know, I became aware that really what my addiction is being fueled by is this desire to escape from post-traumatic stress disorder. And that is, um, you know, for, for I'm, I'm sure everyone has some awareness of what it is because it's been talked about so much in popular media and online. Um, but it really is kind of a breakdown between the connection between your psych psychological health and your physical health. Um, a big hallmark of post-traumatic stress disorder that 
sometimes gets represented accurately on TV, but doesn't always, is this uh, disassociative state that people go into. Like your body is here, but your thoughts are just like so engrossed with an intrusive memory that's kind of coming on in the form of like a really bad daydream um, that like you're present physically, but things are going on that you're not fully aware of. Um, and I find that lifting weights kind of puts those two parts of myself back together. It puts the brain back into the body or the mind back into the body. Um, you know, before I got into recovery, I thought, uh, you know, I would see a show, uh, I don't know, like Deer Hunter or a movie like Deer Hunter or like First Blood. Um, you know, not the, not the best de depiction of post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, but they would depict like a flashback as like being like a full on hallucination where you're like seeing the sights and hearing the sounds. And maybe for some people it's that extreme, but for me, I never really experienced it any more than like a memory or a daydream that I could not as best as much. I wanted to pull my, my attention away from, um, and exercise kind of helps put that back together. Um, I think, and, and I, and I'm hope, hopeful that you'll be able to speak at length about this. Um, yoga is kind of like an ancient practice of doing exactly that. It's physical exercise, but it's also a form of meditation, right? Yeah. So I, I, uh, I like yoga because it is, you, you emphasize the breath and the body and the mind connection. Um, so obviously there's so many different paths of yoga, right? There's, you know, I practice in the morning, I practice an Ashtanga practice, which is pretty physical. You know, there's yin where you would stay in the same pose for three to five minutes, right? There's restorative, you know, and then there's like power and all this vinyasa. So there's lots of different styles of yoga and there's so many more even past that, right? Like, um, but I, so because of like this PTSD stuff that you're talking about, for me, my body, and this kind of relates to the anger piece too, I have to do a very intense physical practice to help calm my body and to sink in. Um, so, you know, I practice like a, a style of breathing, which I'm sure most people have heard of. It's like box breathing, but essentially in yoga, right? Like we might call it like our ocean breath or something like that, you know, a little more crazy, but you would breathe in your nose, right? Four breaths, breathe out your nose, four breaths, right? And you could just kind of circle through that. And then you can even still restrict your throat and start to make noise. Hence why they call it like an ocean sound or an ocean breathing. So throughout a vinyasa practice, you would stay with that breath and kind of move through, say your sun salutations or whatever. I mean, you guys have seen, I do all kinds of weird stuff with yoga, you know, like, but your body ultimately, um, gets its strength from the breath and your mind starts to stabilize and connect everything together. And this is nice because if you're, if you are someone that has a lot of mental health issues, it feels really good to get, you know, you're getting endorphins by moving your body and it feels good to actually have something to do while you sort of think about something. Whereas like, I know we both have right. Our, history with recovery dharma refuge recovery and like meditation type stuff right and and buddhist recovery and and i love it but i did need more than just like a sitting silent practice for me because of right some of this like trauma in my life and how it would show up so being able to move my body first and then settle into it made it easier for me to kind of like look at it from an outsider's perspective uh, then if I were to just like go and sit down 
when I was angry, right? I'd have a lot more trouble. Um, you know, and, and there's a lot of studies with the fact that we hold trauma in our tissues, you know, in our body. Um, you know, very, I always talk to like my girls and the women that come to my classes about, you know, like tight hips and stuff like that. As, as women, we carry a lot of our stress in our hips, you know, so you might find that as like you practice some like seated stretches or something, you do find like, oh my gosh, I'm feeling emotional right now. <laughs> this is, this is weird. Like I'm used to holding it in, you know, especially for those of us with this trauma and this anger, I think anger was our way of sort of avoiding those uncomfortable emotions, like say crying yeah. or something, you know, so to kind of be in a position like that, where it's almost like coming uncontrollably can be a little bit scary. Um, and, you know, men carry a lot of their stress in their shoulders and their neck and everything. And I think we can attest to this and, and then I'll, I'll toss it back over to you. But, you know, we we can understand this even at a very basic level, right? If you get excited about a show, you know, I'm sure like tons of the people that are listening to this went to the New Year's show and they were probably super excited about it. I'm not going to get too graphic, but let me just tell you what happens when you get really excited. You get some digestive issues, right? You know, you get like some like antsy feelings and stuff like that. So it's almost undeniable, right? This mind body connection. And um, I actually had a show the first time sober was how I really started to understand my breath because I was at a show. Gosh, I can't remember what one it was because, right, this was seven years ago. But I remember getting really anxious because I didn't have a drink. You know, it was my first show after getting sober. It's probably I was super anxious about like who I was going to see there. You know what I mean? I was super anxious about like being sober there. And um, and I remember just like being like, OK, Hannah, just breathe. Right. Like breathe in. And I started counting my breath. And, and then I did find that it relaxed my body. And I was able to sort of like hang tight and sit in this experience that for me, and I mean, I'll be honest, maybe you can speak to this too, but I think like nowadays, maybe it's the older we get or, or something, but I still get anxiety when I go to shows and be in public and stuff. It's not easy. You know, I don't know if the internet made that worse or what, but like, I, I mean, when I was a kid, I didn't think anything of it. Maybe it's just our past history, but I, I still have to go back to my breath sometimes before I, I even do something like that. So I'm going to, th I'm going to throw it back over to you now. Well, I know what you mean about getting nervous. Uh, and, and like, I, I, I understand that because now that I'm like older, I'm like, oh man, there's like just so many fucked up things happening in the world. And if you're in a, in a, in a sufficient sized um, crowd, you know, the likelihood of that just keeps going up the larger the crowd gets. Um, so you, you talk about, uh, you talked about needing to do something more intense than just like breathing exercises. And I totally get that. Um, for me, uh, the way I got started on addiction and then ultimately the thing that got me into recovery was my inability to sleep. Um, when I was young and, you know, these horrible things would happen, you know, the abuse oftentimes began in my sleep. And so naturally I just have this very, um, apprehensive um, relationship with sleep. I'm, uh, you know, I can wake up pretty easily if I don't wear earplugs or something like that. Um, and I found uh, even before addiction started for me that I slept better when I just did intense weightlifting um, because my body was just like so physically depleted. I didn't really have the energy to sustain all the anxious thoughts either about the past trauma or about, you know, stressors, um, you know, problematic 
um, dynamics going on in my relationship and my family or at work that were reminiscent of, you know, some of these past abuses. Um, I didn't have time for any of that when my body was just so sore from working out. And uh, still, that's like one of my favorite things is to just be lying in bed after a good workout and having the muscles be sore. I, I oftentimes call that the feeling of uh, putting money in the bank. Um, so I, I, I totally get that and, and think that's like a critical component for me to for me recovering from PTSD. Um, you'd also mentioned, um, kind of, uh, the breath and what I like about breathing exercises, because I do supplement all of my working out with a daily meditation practice. Um, at the end of the day, I always meditate right before I go to bed because that helps with sleeping. But I, I do go to group meditation meetings, uh, sometimes recovery meetings, sometimes like just purely people who want to get together and meditate. And I find that like the group dynamic of a bunch of people who are all meditating together makes the meditation hit different than when you're doing the exact same one at home on your own. And I liken it to um, you know, I play an instrument and I play my instrument on my own to practice it or sometimes just for my own fun and it's great and I enjoy it for what it is, but it's not the same thing as playing in, in a band. Um, when you're all doing the same thing together, there's just something very reassuring for us humans about being with a group of people and we're all doing the same thing and we all think it means the same thing. Um, so breathing to me is, um, you know, that's the the root of meditation and what I focus most on. Uh, and I think that's because I've heard it described on like podcasts and books that I read about meditation that that breathing is both a voluntary and involuntary activity, depending on where you're casting your attention. Um, and I find that's the key to slowing down my heart rate because I can't just sit and will myself to have a slower heart rate that generally only makes it go faster, um, you know, to put that kind of pressure on me. But I can slow my breathing when my heart is going out of control. Um, and then that eventually has like kind of a pull on the heart rate. Um, there's one other thing I wanted to hit out. I'm probably gonna have to edit this part out because I, I can't remember what it what it was, but I'll, I'll come back to it. You mentioned something. I was like, oh, that's the high point. I gotta, I definitely gotta speak. Uh, I gotta speak to that. Um, so we'll come, we'll come back. I guess we'll come back to that. Uh, um, when it when when my my memory returns to me. Um, you know what's funny is I. Uh... I listened to an entire, I wish I could remember what the podcast was now. Maybe it was like the Huberman podcast or something, but I'm listening to him all the time. But um, I was, I was understanding. So, right. So a lot of times those of us with PTSD and trauma, we have really high cortisol levels. So, you know, things like yoga, breath work, exercise, right. We want to, we want to lower our cortisol levels, right. Find balance. Um, and I found that one of the most natural ways to do that is actually the sigh. Mm. It's the best way that deep breath in and that full like exhale, audible, loud sigh. And I often think, wow, how simple. But then I realize that what happens when we feel right, like these sensations go on, we hold our breath, you know, we tighten up like these things. And ultimately like that, you know, raises cortisol levels and the sigh drops. It helps us know like, Hey, I'm safe. And that's the big thing. So at a, a very animalistic, um, like basic foundation of the human body, when you go into that fight or flight state, everything tightens, right? Because you're getting ready to run. 
you know, we're getting ready to run, we're getting ready to fight. So with PTSD, your body goes into this state and you're not, I mean, sometimes we know why, sometimes we don't know why, you know? So the sigh is huge because it allows us to, hey, you're not actually here anymore. Like it feels like you are. And in a very real way, you are still in that space. I don't want to like discredit anyone's like, PTSD flashbacks, because I also have them and they're quite miserable. But I will say like this, it's like, we have to know how to recognize this is happening, but this is where I am now and I'm safe, you know? So I think that's where it is. I, I find it, it's amazing that you bring up group meditation because I also found that a little bit easier too, especially if I'm around a really safe group of people. Um, you know, um, like I said, I, I did my first like reparenting meditation with Josh Corda in Philadelphia, which he's a, like a Buddhist pastor and, um, addiction psychologist and all kinds of crazy stuff. Super, super cool guy uh, from the punk scene, you know, and, um, it was nice cause I, I felt safe there, you know, and, and that's kind of the big thing is we, we live in this like weird taboo world where like, honestly, I'm just going to be real here. We're not safe and we're never going to be safe. So we have to learn to make ourselves feel safe. Right. Like, and, and that's just a very, the way I look at the world, you know, like you said, we could go into public places and anything could happen. I could go into work. I have people that bring guns into my job all the time. We're constantly finding like things go down that you're just like, okay, what's going to happen today? You know, um, not to like go too much in that. And sometimes that does affect, you know, like my PTSD and everything, yeah. but how can I, how can we be safe now? I think is, is where we go into that. And I, I think that ties back into the harm reduction thing and everything else we're talking about is what does that look like individually for each of us? How can we be a little bit safer for ourselves so that eventually we can be safer for other people? So um, true to form, uh, my my brain served up the thing I I was intending to talk about, which is uh, where, where we hold our stress. Um, and for me, I realized at some point, um, because I, I received some advice from someone in my job, this had like nothing to do with psychology or addiction or anything, um, you know, but he basically said like, you have like your brow furrowed quite a bit. Like you need to unfurl your brow when you're in like meetings with people because people think you're like mad. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, whatever. Like just take it or leave it, man. Like, cause that was before I like gave a shit. Um, but now I like realize I've been like going through life and I'm anxious and I feel scared and I don't ever feel like sometimes I feel physically safe, but I'm not always sure that I'm emotionally safe. And we're like, what does this all do? I'm like going through life like this. Like I'm thinking my deep thoughts and like, I'm just like looking like this. And it's like, people come up to me and they're like, what, like, Hey, what time is it? And I'm like, uh, it's like, it's like nine 45. Okay. Um, and they're like, okay, asshole. Like, fuck you too. And I'm like, what the hell? Why are like, why are these people hating on me? Like, why do I have all these conflicts? And I swear to God, after I like got this advice from someone in a library about like how I'm conducting myself in meetings, I realized like I've been going through life with my brow. Like I'm really angry. And that's like having an impact on like all these relationships that I have in a way that I'm like totally ignorant to. Um, now feeling safe. Um, that's always such a challenge because you like never actually know when you're safe. And I feel like that is part of the appeal to, to me, um, of Buddhism. Um, 
you know, I was brought up like most people in a home where, you know, my, my parents and grandparents were all different types of Christians. Um, and some of this is because, you know, the abuse I received as a kid was kind of wallpapered over, uh, you know, by my abuser with like a misuse of religion. And so I like early on distrusted Christianity. I'm like, well, fuck this religion. It's going to send me to hell for something that I didn't even have a say in. Um, and now I understand that that was not actually accurate, but, you know, I formed my opinions and kind of started exploring other religious models. Um, but what I like about Buddhism in, in that it can offer us something that at least helps us create a sense of safety or real safety, um, is that it kind of teaches us that like now is all we have now is the only time that exists. The past and the future are abstract concepts that exist they will exist at some point in the future. They did exist some point in the past, but right now, the eternal now um, that, you know, we're kind of all riding forward on like a, a wave approaching the shore, um, you know, those are just concepts that exist only in my mind. Um, and that for me was like so liberating because the past just had such a gravitational pull on my thoughts and my experience and i let it color everything about me but once i was kind of given permission to start thinking about the past as this imperfect recollection of the facts some of which are accurate many of which are not um it started to have like less control over my decision making and my mood and my attitude and my interactions and relationships with other people um so for me, in terms of creating a, a safe environment, um, it's one where we acknowledge what's actually going on right now in reality with as little kind of narrativizing or storytelling as as we possibly can. Um, and that's kind of like what I get out of Buddhism. And I, I consider myself a secular Buddhist. Um, I'm not like totally steeped in the mythology, although that has its place for me and is something that I'm interested in and wind up reading about and listening to podcasts about. Um, does, does any of that connect with like your experience of Buddhism or is, is Buddhism for you primarily like, um, like a physical and spiritual practice? No, I mean, that's, that's really what got me into it is so, um, you know, I like you, like my, my dad was a Baptist pastor actually. And, um, so like, we were like raised, you know, like homeschool, predestination, believing, I mean, it was pretty much like a call actually, <laughs> you know, so, you know, there was no, uh, yeah, everything was like Christian radio, Christian TV. Mm -hmm. It was wild. Anyways, lots of, lots of like uh, religious trauma there that I've had to work out through, which I think also led into my addiction. And, um, and I still struggle with actually, like from time to time, like I know it's not real, but like sometimes things will seep into my dreams or I'll hear myself say something and I'll be like, oh. <gasps> oh my God, are my kids going to go to hell? Like, you know, and, and it's, it's a little bit scary. And, and so when I, when I found recovery, I was like, I'm not doing 12 step stuff. Nope, absolutely not. No way. God is not going to save me. He didn't save me then. And he's not going to save me now. Right. Um, so when I found Buddhism, I was like, this is a very real depiction of how I view reality, right? Like that life is suffering and life is pain. And I have the choice of how I'm going to live my life, right? Like I get to actually see and what you're talking about, right? Is seeing the truth, like using mindfulness to actually see the truth of the present moment of the experience. And, and yeah, that is safety, I think too, because a lot of times what we view as not safe is because it's viewed by a lens from our past 
or our future, you know? I mean, yes, of course, like maybe we're in a situation that is like in immediate danger, but nine times out of 10, what we're perceiving as danger is kind of like somewhere outside of the present moment. And, and it's a lens, like we put on these glasses and, you know, they're, they're, we're there. And um, so I think safety is actually seeing like, well, what's actually happening now? And, and that's, so I'm the same way. I am, that's what brought me into Buddhism. And it was really cool. It was when I, when I realized I could like find something that was healing, but still was like, no, life kind of sucks and that's okay. I was like, oh, hell yeah, because life does suck sometimes. And I, we could go on and talk about toxic positivity, but I'll just put a little plug out. I can't stand it. You're, yeah. We're not meant to, we're just not meant to be positive all the time. It's sometimes life sucks and that's okay. And then tomorrow it's gonna get better or maybe it won't and it'll be the next day. But you know, it's like, if we don't just kind of like accept what is now, what is happening, you know, we're ultimately like, that's how we create the unsafe environment, in my opinion. It acknowledges that suffering is inherent to the experience, but that that suffering is proportional to either to our lack of understanding about, <clears throat> about the cause of the suffering. And for me, so many years of my life were spent suffering needlessly because I had all of these memories that were forcing their way, uh, you know, into my, my present thoughts. Um, and I felt like I had no choice but to entertain those thoughts and to to try to do something with them. Um, and what that took the form of is me telling myself a story where I'm the victim and that I was powerless and this happened because I was stupid and it will continue to happen because I you know can't figure out what's going on around me. Um, when I encountered Buddhist philosophy, um, it gives you kind of a set of tools where you can better ascertain what do I actually have control over and what is more or less a story I'm telling myself that is filled with assumptions and lack of information um, and maybe half-truths or projections uh, based on, you know, past memories or emotional states. Um, once you can start identifying those in the narrative that you have kind of going in, in, in your head, in the back of your mind as you go about your day, you begin to kind of strip away um, some of that unnecessary suffering where I'm entertaining the thoughts. Well, like, well, maybe these bad things happen to me because I'm fated to have bad things happen to me or because I'm a fundamentally bad person and I deserve to have bad things happening to me. Um, so Buddhism does that, uh, has kind of given me the, the key to unlock that door and kind of set me free from, from some of that. Um, I'm not like a guru yet. I oftentimes where I'm at now, I catch myself like, I'm like, you know, I don't know, five minutes into some inner monologue where, you know, I'm having a pity party for myself and I realize, oh, that's what I'm doing. I need to just change my setting or, or, you know, go for a walk or a drive or do something fundamentally different to kind of snap myself out of that pattern of thought. Um, and I, and I like to think that, you know, I've been doing meditation for five years, uh, consistently. Um, I'd like to think that maybe in another five, I'm not, catching myself after, you know, five or 10 minutes of having these like negative daydreams that are filled with catastrophizing. Maybe I'm catching myself after like two minutes or 45 seconds. To me, that's like kind of what liberation would look like. It's the awareness that this is something I'm choosing to do and I don't have to do it um, anymore or to the extent that I'm, I'm, I'm doing it. Um, one other thing I wanted to talk about in this, uh, if it's all right with you is, um, 
you know, I mentioned that I'm, I'm a secular Buddhist and, you know, I don't know that I'm saying that because, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I also consider myself to be an atheist and, and I also am like somewhat of an asshole and I kind of can't let go of that like label, even though I know like in Buddhism, we're not supposed to like label and judge. Um, but my, my worldview is like firmly scientific. Um, you know, if I'm going to make decisions about, you know, my diet or my exercise, like I want to know what does like a doctor say, what does science say? What does the data say? Um, and what I like about Buddhism is that it lines up so, so well with concepts that are scientifically, um, you know, vetted in psychology, um, in, in physics. Um, and it does seem to match better with a scientific worldview than maybe, um, one of the Abrahamic religions, um, which those seem to be largely hostile uh, to science. Um, so like for me, I, I, I think any religion can be a beneficial thing to a person's life in recovery, um, or just a person going through a difficult time or addressing some kind of trauma, whether it's resulted in a mental illness or an addiction. Um, but Buddhism, um, you know, it offers us kind of this story of reincarnation, which I, I like to think about quite a bit. And if you compare it to like kind of the other big, you know, what is the ultimate metaphysical reality of the universe, um, you know, philosophy that the, uh, you know, Christianity, Judaism and Islam kind of have, that's like, well, heaven, you're, when you die, you're going to go to a realm where you're in a blissful state and you'll be reunited with everyone. Um, and reincarnation is, you know, you'll continue to be reborn into different lifetimes uh, with no memory of, of the one you had before, but what you do in this life informs the next. And I kind of view both of those as just probably not being the way the universe actu actually works, but knowing that if you're going to tell yourself a story that isn't true, which one is going to result in a better life experience and, and more consistent, positive beneficial, compassionate decision-making. And before people like jump down my throat, like, oh, I'm talking shit about Christianity. Ultimately, the one you choose really says more about you psychologically, or maybe your relationships or your circumstances than the reality of the universe. Um, but for me, the idea of reincarnation is appealing because I've, I've been like constantly reincarnating throughout this life. I've been developing this like false sense of self, this little narrative about who I am and what I'm capable of and how I should be treated. Um, and eventually I encounter an experience or some information that breaks that down. It doesn't work for me anymore in the same way. And I kind of lose, a, it feels like I'm losing a part of myself. Like I'm not Greg, the straight edge guy anymore. I'm like Greg, the guy who's addicted to sleeping pills. That, that was really hard. That was me waking up to the new, you know, the reality of my life. And in some ways, as unpleasant as that was, that was like, you know, my first steps into liberation. Um, I don't know how, you know, like the, the cultural myth of like heaven would have helped me, um, you know, work through that. But intuitively, I would say reincarnation worked intuitively in helping me navigate that situation. Like, oh, I've been telling myself a story about who I am that isn't accurate. And I'm just like over-invested in that story. Um, and I find that that is kind of the root of like most of the psychotherapy I've gone to do, whether it's uh, EMDR, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing or cognitive behavioral therapy or group therapy. Um, 
in in every one of those we're kind of identifying false aspects of our self-identity and turning them into something that's accurate Yeah, I mean, there's a lot there. <laughs> we should probably just do our own podcast at some point. But, uh, um, you know, it's interesting because reincarnation, in the beginning, I rejected it completely. I was like, okay, I can I can get into most things that Buddhism talks about except for that. And, and there is that thought process. I think you are right in a lot of ways. Like, you know, there's that like each day we're born again kind of thought process. But it's true. We go through so many different things in our life. It's ridiculous to think that, you know, I turned 35 this year. That's crazy to me. That's absolutely insane. My daughter turns 10 next month. I'm like, holy shit. But like, I'm not the same person that I was when I was 15. That feels like another life, you know? And I'm not going to be the same person I am when I'm 40. And and I think it goes back to like, that's the like being kinder. I hope that I just continue to get better and better through the years, right? Become a better person, kinder person, better. Now, as far as the actual thought of reincarnation, you know, I don't necessarily think, you know, there's some thoughts that, you know, what we think about when we die, that's, that's what we become in the next life. There's the heaven stuff. There's all these other things. There's, you know, getting good karma and then collectively, hopefully, you know, getting into like different realms. I tend to do sort of dabble with the thought that we do reincarnate as like energy, like as our energy disperses, it goes into the universe somewhere without sounding a little bit too hippie. Yeah. Um, what that looks like, I don't know, but I like the thought that it happens. And I think that, um, and there could be some like metaphysical evidence that, that shows that. And it doesn't mean that, you know, me as like a person, right. This, uh, you know, the ego, whatever that's, that transfers, like would go into something else. I mean, I guess I wouldn't know. Um, but you know, you can get into some fun topics about this, even deja vu and all sorts of different things that you can be like, Hmm, I don't know, man, like, What's yeah. going on there? So I think like if I if I could agree with anything as far as reincarnation goes, I do think that, you know, I like the thought that it is just like continuously being better and shedding skin and becoming new constantly, but also that the energy kind of does go somewhere else. I think that I think we I think we could probably kind of dabble with that thought as something that I could get behind. So this is like the part of the podcast where I think people are going to be like, hey, this was supposed to be an episode about recovery. And you two sound like a couple of hippies who just like smoked a bunch of weed and like talked about like some navel gazing shit, you know, like what happens after you die. Um, but I, you know, I mentioned that my, um, you know, my worldview is, 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 is a firmly scientific one. And I really like some of the more bizarre things in physics that kind of allude to like what I would think is maybe a version of reincarnation. Um, there's a number of, of theories um, uh, in physics, um, and you can you uh, you the listener, not necessarily you, Hannah, though you certainly are welcome to to go and, and listen to some of these podcasts or, or watch documentaries. But there's a there's a documentary on Netflix that I think is a good starting point for people who who want to understand maybe a little bit more about what I'm talking about, and that's called a trip to infinity. Um, and there's some ideas in physics that that basically posit that uh, you know there are multiple universes, or that the universe, um, you know, when it experiences heat death and all matter has been rendered inert, uh, would eventually recreate itself again from the beginning, um, kind of in an endless cycle. Um, that 
to me sounds an awful lot like um, ideas that are present in Eastern religions of, you know, cycles of creation and destruction. Um, there's other ideas that, um, you know, for every outcome uh, that is possible, there's like an alternate universe where that outcome uh, did transpire. That to me tells me that, you know, if that were true, which we will never know, and I would never like actually make any decisions based on, you know, this information. But if that sort of thing were true, then that means there's other versions of us out there. And in some ways, uh, you know, living similar or completely different lives. And in some ways, that's that's almost like, am I am I being reincarnated in this future universe that will exist in some eons after, you know, this one is uh, runs its course and is destroyed? You know, maybe it is. Um, but at the at the end of the day, I just feel like, knowing that the decisions that i make now will continue to affect people they'll continue to affect people's memory of me and my reputation and the people that i love um that sounds more like reincarnation than like okay well when i die i'll be if i ask for forgiveness it'll be given to me and then i'll just be in a state of bliss for an eternity um that doesn't really seem to square up with what i know of uh the reality um you know when someone does die because the decisions we make do continue past our lifetime and we do need to be cognizant uh, of that so at the very least assuming none of it's true i think for me personally buddhism and and the kind of the the philosophy of reincarnation and those ideas does much more to help me in this life um than you know the idea of a reward if i'm just good enough um you know helping me in the next yeah, I think the reward system like that for for our brains is, is not always so healthy. You know, we just we're kind of naturally always chasing pleasure centers, especially those of us with trauma, you know, and like, you know, that addictive kind of gene and brain. So we have to actually kind of train ourselves to enjoy the opposite. Um you know, and and that, you know, that ties into like everything we've been talking about, right? Like being mindful of the present moment. That's not comfortable for most people. It sucks to be in the present moment. I'd say nine times out of nine out of 10 people are probably not actually present, you know, and test that theory, drive to work the next day and see if you actually remember how you got there. Um, You know, because it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable to actually be there. So I don't know. It's interesting. I lost my train of thought there for a second because I started laughing at how I'm going to drive to work tomorrow. But, <laughs> um, you know, it, it is the spidey verse. Yeah. I like, I like thinking about it like that too. It's, it gets my head kind of going. I'm like, is there alternate realities? What are we doing? Gosh, maybe we should talk about crystals the next podcast. I'm just kidding. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, You're like, yeah. Oh God. Um, no, but I, you know, I think these are great conversations to have and, and it's good for our brains to think about them. And, and I want to just really touch base and hone in on what you said about what we do, whether it's reincarnation or not, our lives affect other people and the planet and everything else around us. And I think that at anything for me has been an anchor to help me change my life for the better. Right? Like I know that there's a ripple effect to everything that I do even down to like what I'm eating, how I'm exercising, what I'm buying. And I think that's something that everyone needs to work on being more aware of. You know, we're not, and, and we can't do that. You can't see that if you're not actually present and seeing what the truth is of the present moment to make that correct decision. 
just to speak to something that you had mentioned, um, you know, with how, how, how our decisions impact other people's lives. Um, I, I believe that you kind of evil is just simply the absence of good. And I, I know that's, that's not my own original idea. That's an idea that's been discussed for, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of years, but the absence of good eventually, you know, distorts into evil. Um, and so I need to be present in each moment and intentional with how I'm interacting with others and even my own self. Um, because if I'm, you know, not being careful, if I don't have the right intentions uh, from the onset, I'm eventually going to act inexpertly and cause some kind of harm to someone else or to myself. Um, now, I guess what I what I what I mean by that is in every interaction that I have with other people, and, and, and it's more apparent to me in my interactions with others than it is in my interactions with myself, but this dynamic is present even when I'm talking to myself or thinking about myself uh, in my own thoughts. Um, but every every person that I'm interacting with, no matter what's going on, no matter what the basis of our relationship is or how I feel about them, there is a way to conduct myself in that interaction and resolve whatever issue or problem we might have with compassion and to treat that person with compassion. Um, and I don't succeed in finding that um, outcome on a daily basis in multiple interactions, but I know that it's there and I believe that it's there that if I just had, uh, you know, the right peace of mind um, or the right information or the right wisdom, um, or maybe a little bit more patience, um, I could interact with every single person that I see on a daily basis, um, you know, with compassion and patience and leave them and myself better than they were when I found them. Um, and I even bring that to myself. Like I want to get to a place where like, I'm not castigating myself and my own thoughts for doing something foolish or stupid in the past or for making a mistake. Um, I want to interact with myself with that same sense of compassion. That's a little harder for me to do because I've, I've been so hard on myself all my life. I've built up so much practice. Um, but, but to me, that's kind of, what I hope to do with my life through Buddhism is try to find that way to be compassionate to people who are suffering before me, even if they're a bad person, even if they're being unkind to me. Um, I still think the best way to, to conduct oneself is with compassion. And if you truly can't do that, hopefully you have the freedom to remove yourself from that situation. And then leaving it at that. Yeah, uh, I, I agree. I mean, I yeah, we're like, we're going to talk for an hour. And <laughs> um, yeah, I agree that oh, the compassion thing is very hard. I feel bad because I fail with it the most with my kids. Like, not that I'm like a bad dad or anything, but I'm just like, oh, geez, again with this problem. And like, oh, you, the microwave popcorn I made for you wasn't good enough, you know, and you're going to throw a fit about that. And that's going to be the meltdown we have tonight. Um, but I don't know. I, I really, I really think having kids uh, has been the thing that started me on this journey in many ways, um, more so than than the trauma. I mean, the trauma happened, and it was beyond my fault. But having, you know, it's it not my fault. But having kids was something I chose to do, and this work comes along with kind of like being a better person for them and modeling how it is that I hope they would act uh, in the future when they're when they're adults. Um, and and you just referenced it. I did say I wanted to like keep this to an hour because that seems to be what people like the most. And and I think we've approached the hour. Um, I do want to before we wrap up this meeting or this uh this meeting. Oh boy, um, before we wrap up this interview, I want to talk a little bit about 
uh, just some of the resources that are available that have worked for both of us. Um, uh, if, if folks who follow you on Instagram, and if you want, you can give out your Instagram profile. If, if not, that's fine too. But folks who follow you know that you're very involved in the recovery community. Um, I've been involved in, in recovery for a number of years. Um, I participate in a, a group called Recovery Dharma, which is a Buddhism-based uh, recovery um, program. Um, it's not a 12-step program because similar to you, I had all these misgivings and distrust of a 12-step program. Um, and I found it's worked really well for me. There's communal supports, there's accountability, um, but it's more than just focusing on your relationship with alcohol um, the same way that AA does. Um, it's a more broad approach. And I find that to be really helpful because once I addressed my addiction to benzodiazepines or my use of like cannabis products, um, I began to see that I have like an addictive relationship at times with like the internet and, you know, on online shopping and TV, um, you know, it can take on many behavioral forms. And this is a program that'll, once you've dealt with the big issues, you can keep going back and addressing the smaller issues that, you know, reveal that you've got some addictive uh, personality traits. Um, so if you're in the Rochester area, um, Recovery Dharma meets three times a week um, on Wednesdays um, in the evening at eight. Uh, I, I, I facilitate those meetings. There's a Friday afternoon meeting at 1215. Both of those are at the South Wedge Mission, uh, which is um, uh, in the South Wedge in Rochester. It's it's kind of an institution. People can look it up. And then they meet uh, Sunday um, at, a, at, a, at a psychotherapy office called Kavod, which is a writing-based um, meeting, which I find to be really helpful because I think I use a different part of my brain when I'm like writing something versus sharing, you know, my story verbally. Um, would you mind telling us just a little bit about some of the resources that might be available for people in the Syracuse area? Yeah. So I'm at uh, Hilo Health and we actually have like a walk-in clinic that's open right on 329 North Salina Street, 24 hours a day, which is something new that we just uh, started doing. So it's actually for like mental health crisis um, and we can even do... Um, you know, a little bit of withdrawal um, if we're waiting to get into a detox or something. So that's an awesome resource. Um, just a you can just if you go to the Helio Health website, you can be there. And obviously, if you're interested in harm reduction stuff, you can yeah, people can reach out to me at any point. Um, you can definitely throw my Instagram name up there. It's fine. Just Hannah Joan 108. Um, but you know, I think even though Oasis website actually, you can order like free Narcan. Um, test strips, fentanyl test strips are huge. Um, there is xylazine test strips now. So, you know, for those of you in, you know, and honestly, if anyone is listening that say is still struggling with addiction, like I'm sure you can reach out to either one of us and we're more than willing to help give those resources to, to anyone that needs it. And, um, you know, anyone else, I mean, just keep trying. And, and I just want to tell you, like, give yourself a break. Like, and I know it's like easier said than done. And, and I'm also my own worst critic. But, um, you know, we, we, we send a lot of love and we try to help a lot of other people. And, and if it's not coming back and we're not actually being kind with ourselves, then, you know, it all starts with how we view ourselves. And that will help us view the world differently. So I don't know. I think that's a good place to end it. I'm super glad that we had this conversation again and, you know, I'm glad hardcore brought us together. Right. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for being on. And these are some of the, you know, most important episodes that I do where we talk about uh, addiction and mental health with uh, compassion and vulnerability. 
Um, and I think that, you know, folks who follow you on Instagram will know you exemplify all of that exceptionally. Um, so thank you for sharing your life and your story, you know, on social media. I think a lot of people have probably brought themselves to a healthier place through seeing you and people like you uh, doing that. So, so thank you. And, um, be sure to follow, um, Hardcore Archive podcast and Enterprise Hardcore, uh, on Instagram for updates on the podcast. And uh, after you're done listening to this episode, if you could uh, review the podcast uh, wherever you download your podcast, I'm told that helps us with uh, our reach and our in the algorithm and connecting with new people. So thank you, everyone who's listened to this. And thank you, especially Hannah. Hey. So, um, Hardcore Archive podcast and Enterprise Hardcore uh, on Instagram for updates on the podcast. And uh, after you're done listening to this episode, if you could uh, review the podcast uh, wherever you download your podcast. I'm told that helps us with uh, our reach and our in the algorithm and connecting with new people. So thank you, everyone who's listened to this, and thank you, especially Hannah. Thank the Hardcore Archive podcast is Josh Lyons and Greg Benoit with creative support from Rob Antonucci. This podcast is a product of the Rochester Hardcore community. Theme song provided by Stand Fast. Visit Hardcore Archive podcast on Linktree to listen to past episodes. Follow Hardcore Archive Podcast and Enterprise Hardcore Podcast on Instagram for updates. If you have an idea for an episode or would like to have your band's music featured during the closing credits, please contact us at hardcorearchivepodcast at gmail.com. Hey.